God's word, God's people, and God's truth are under assault and attack. Take refuge in the Lord. We need everyone to dig deeper, to lay the foundation so that we can stand tall for the Lord. You saw that service Taylor just gave me, right? He's going to preach. I don't know. He carried it all out here and tried to open up my computer, but he doesn't have my finger, so he can't open it. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to be up here and talk with you guys, but I, but I want to start out a way that I needed to start out myself first service. Now, if I were to poll and just ask you guys to raise your hands of people who have maybe experienced a stale prayer life, maybe a stale prayer season where you're just you seem to find yourself praying the exact same stuff over and over. We as, as, as humans, we like routine. As much as you maybe try to say you don't, we do. We naturally will find ourselves maybe praying, starting out a prayer the exact same way. We, we try to thank God for the exact same thing. Maybe we ask God to do the exact same, same thing over and over again. And then finally we get to the point where we're like, why am I praying? And if I'm being completely honest with you, that happened to me this week to where I found myself just in this monotonous, same routine of prayer and I was bored. And you're like, Philip, a preacher can't say that. Well, good, I'm the youth minister, so you're fine. But I wanna give you guys something new to try today. This is something that uh, I heard earlier this week that I, that I honestly believe has changed the way that I will view prayer, at least for a season. I can't say forever, but we're gonna do it this morning. See, in the book of Psalms, you're going to find people who are probably at their bottom. You're gonna find people who are, are, are so broken, feel so busted, feel so sad, feel so uh, just down that they have, no, uh, they, they have nothing else to do but pray. You'll find people who are mad, who are just voicing their anger out to God. But ultimately, Psalms are people's prayers. They're people's poems. It's called poetry literature. And with this new prayer thing that I'm going to encourage you guys to do is that you take a Psalm. You can pick any Psalm you want. Some of them you're going to be like, okay, how do I pray that? How do I pray fire and sulfur come down on my enemies? Like, it's an easy one. But you open up your Psalm and you just simply pray a line. So I'm gonna have you guys close your eyes and I'm gonna pray a psalm over you guys, line by line. And you just fit it to your mind. Psalm 56, verse three. When I am afraid. God, there are times in our lives to where our fear rules us. And God, when I am afraid, I know what my natural bend is. It's, I either face it head on and I try to fight whatever it is regardless if it's an emotion or if it's physical. And God, when I am afraid, my initial thing, if I'm being open and honest, is not to seek you, it's to seek my own strength. And God, I'm sorry for that. When I am afraid, I don't look to you, I look to the mirror, and God, that's when I find myself even more afraid. So God, soften my heart. And when I am afraid, God, help me to not seek me, but like you say in the second line, I will trust in you. God, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Even when it feels like I'm talking to nothing. Even when it feels like everything around my world is shattering, God. In my fear, I will trust in you. In verse four, in God, whose word I praise. Some days that's easy, some days it's not. In God, I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? 
God, as much as this world tries to tell us that everything is falling in around us, God, you are not caught off guard. You are not surprised. You know what to expect. And God, when we are afraid, we will look to you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All you do is take a line of a psalm and you just pray it out loud. You don't have to prepare anything. You don't have to overthink it. What comes to your mind is exactly where God wants that. That's the Spirit speaking through you. And don't be afraid. So if you're stale, try it. But today is a good day. You see, if this is maybe your first time here at Gateway and and you're just trying to see like, hey, what sermon series we're in, we're actually breaking off of our normal sermon series because today is our Foundations Sunday. We just started a series here recently on the Sermon on the Mount, but the last Sunday of every single month, we take some of life's most difficult questions, some of faith's most difficult questions, and we do our best to answer them. And unfortunately, we can scratch the surface, but we encourage you to go deeper. So why do we call it foundations? Well, in Psalm chapter 11, verse three, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? See, being in student ministry for almost 10 years now, I've, I've seen it. I've seen kids who are so strong in their faith through middle school and, and through high school and maybe even their first or second year of college. But as I've learned more and more, that first year of college is more difficult than you experienced when you were a freshman in college. Because the enemy's attacks, meaning that, that, that what people who don't believe in God want to do is that they want to take your faith and dismantle it. And I guarantee you that if I were to ask you to raise your hand, which I won't do, if you had ever dismantled your faith or had it maybe questioned, a lot of you would raise your hand. Maybe you're there right now. I'm glad that you're here because that means that you're still seeking. But our goal with foundations is that we help build a foundation that is strong. You see, in the Psalm we just read, David is writing and his friends are trying to convince David to give it all up. But in verse four, David reminds them of who God is. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. God's won the battle. We know what the ending is. The problem we face is that we don't feel like we know the ending enough. So then it goes down to verse six. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. Happy Sunday. This is maybe not, it should not necessarily be seen as literal, but figurative that while that may not, uh, while we could see it literal in some ways, bad things are going to happen to people who aren't in a relationship with Jesus. And our goal as gateway is that we want to help people find Jesus the best that we can. We want people to see Jesus in a way that maybe they never experienced. And we believe that foundations is a good way to do that. And that is our hope. And this is from birth all the way up to this service. For the next week, all of our kids, all of our students, um, the kids have the prepped and prime, which can we give it up for Scarlett and, uh, um, I missed the other name. I'm sorry, give it up for him. Yes. The kids learn that. And as you know, Scarlett is not scared of a mic. And that's what I love. The students uh, are doing the 1030 devotional plan. You guys will be going through it with your small groups in the Sunday morning. And this is trying, this is our identity. And we're going to ask the question today that I think that all of us have asked before that most other religions, most other worldviews attack the most. Who was Jesus? And it's pretty simple. If you can get the, 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 the deity, meaning the godly aspect of Jesus out of it, Christianity is fake. If you can take the humanity side of Jesus out, Christianity doesn't work. So it's easy to attack 
whenever that's the foundation piece of a faith. Am I right? But I'm here to tell you that we have reason to believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So who was Jesus? Well, first question is, is was he even a real person? Bart Ehrman, who we've mentioned before, he is not a Christian. He used to be. Um, and now he teaches New Testament studies at UNC. He believes um, in the person of Jesus, the man side of Jesus, but he doesn't believe that Jesus is God. So he takes the New Testament as just a historical document. That's it. He doesn't think it's, it's inspired by God, but he teaches it from a historical standpoint. And he says this about Jesus. Despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and a teacher who was crucified in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. So what does this guy say? Jesus was a real person. Jesus was a preacher and a teacher. He was crucified on a cross and it was underneath Pontius Pilate. That lines up pretty well with what scripture teaches, am I right? So if we're looking at it at just a historical document, the question is not necessarily, did Jesus exist, but was he who he said he was? In the Western world, meaning like in America, we, we, we have that people who ask that question of, was he even a man? Did he ever exist? I read an article on atheist.org, which was a fun treat, about if Jesus was ever real to begin with. And as we just read, scholars, people who are a lot smarter than me, thank goodness, would all agree that Jesus existed. He preached and he died on behalf of his teaching. But was he actually God in human form? Was he actually 100% God and 100% man? In, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we actually have Jesus ask this question himself. You see, we've asked the question, who is Jesus? But now in these uh, gospels, Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do people say that I am? You see, in two of these gospels, we know that they are in Caesarea of Philippi, which was a city. And this city was polytheistic, meaning that they believed in multiple gods. And Jesus obviously has started his ministry and he looks at the disciples and he says, hey, a lot of people out there believe in a lot of different gods, but what do they believe about me? Which was a fair question, which means that they've been asking this from the start. Well, here was their response. Well, some people say that you're John the baptizer who came back from the dead. Others are saying that you're Elijah from the Old Testament reincarnate. Other people say that, that, say that Jesus was one of the greatest Old Testament prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah. And Jesus then looks at the disciples and he simply says to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And in the same story, just in a different gospel, Peter stands up after he asks that question and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, Peter is like the guy who's ready to fight everything. It doesn't matter. You imagine, and I put it this way, uh, if you can picture somebody who probably drives a Harley, drinks monster energy drinks like it's water, that's Peter. Peter is the guy who's just ready to roll no matter what that is. And I am not downing that person. I wish I had friends like that, okay? 
But Peter was ready to go do whatever it is that needed to be done. So Peter stands up and he says, you are the Messiah, the living God. I know that for a fact. Well, how can you say that, Peter? Well, let's think about what Peter's experienced leading up to this point in time. Peter walked on water. That was a pretty cool thing for him to experience. Peter saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. Uh, Peter saw Jesus lay down the law in the temple and start flipping tables and releasing people's birds. Peter, Peter was on the boat whenever there was a massive storm and they were all freaking out and they wake Jesus up and they're like, hey, we're gonna die, do something about it. Jesus wakes up and says, hey man, why are you tripping? And then he calms the sea, he calms the wind and they're like, oh my goodness, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Peter got to experience a different side of him that made him say that you are the Messiah, the living God, which leads us here in 2023 to ask the same question is, was he God? If we can all agree that Jesus existed as a man and that he was a human, well, then the, the godly aspect is pretty important, right? If you talk to any Muslims, if you talk to Mormons, if you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, if you talk to almost any other worldview, they will attack the character of Jesus, because there are a lot of verses that if you read them just by themselves are kind of confusing. Whenever Jesus is baptized and he says uh, that, that, that he's praying to the Father, okay, well, if you are one, well, then how are you praying to yourself? Are you not praying to yourself? And I wanna go down through 13,000 rabbit trails. I'm gonna stop and I won't. My wife would fight me if I did. Whenever we talk about the Trinity, you will not find the word Trinity in the scriptures. But that doesn't mean that it's not real. Now, what I mean by that is that the word Trinity was used to make, to, to, to make sense of how God exists. The Father is not the Son, but they are still one in, 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 in a, a triangle. You see what I'm saying? Again, I'm stopping myself, not going down the trails here. But whenever you see that Jesus is praying to himself, you gotta understand that God is 100%, um, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And so if we're asking the question, who was Jesus. Well, let's walk through a few of these things that people were saying that he was. Number one, Jesus was a good man. You all know the golden rule that everybody follows. Do to others what you would have them do to you. We could all agree, no matter if you believe in Jesus or not, that this is a good rule for us to follow. That if you are good to other people, you should have good done to you. And if somebody goes against whatever good you are, well, then they're in the wrong. It does not matter if you believe in God, if you are a different religion or whatever else, we can all agree that if you are good, you should have good done to you. That's the hope. But did Jesus just want us to stop there? Like, was he just teaching good things? In the gospels, it's really, really beneficial for you to, to read them this way, is that these were biographies of Jesus. Whenever you're reading different books of the Bible, you don't need to ask yourself, how does this fit Philip? You need to ask who's writing, to who, and how does that relate to me today? And so the biographies were eyewitness accounts of Jesus. These were guys who walked with him. These were guys who saw him do certain things. So you're not going to get this history of Israel in the gospels. You're going to get a biography of who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what Jesus did. And we can all agree that the gospels especially say he's a good man. Let's think about it this way. People who were outcasts or pariahs, Jesus sought them out. People who were uh, 
stricken with disease or sickness, Jesus went to them. Jesus wanted the broken people to see him as hope. Jesus was well known everywhere that he went. He didn't like how the religious leaders were leading. Jesus uh, taught in ways that people could understand. Jesus was well liked throughout most of his ministry because he was teaching things that they had never heard, obviously until they started going against it and he got murdered for it. But overall, Jesus was well liked. He taught good things. People liked whatever information he was because he had a massive gathering everywhere that he went. Jesus was a good man, but did Jesus consider himself just a good man? If you, whenever you read throughout the gospels, a really good rule of thumb is that whenever you see a title for Jesus, circle, highlight, underline. And whenever you're going through the gospels, you're going to see one title in particular that sticks out and it's son of man. Son of man. This is Jesus's favorite title for himself. It's used ridiculous amount of times in just four of these books. Yes, some of them are repeated, obviously, in the same stories, but it's obvious that Jesus considered himself the son of man. This is actually a reference from J Daniel chapter seven, where it says this. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So when Jesus is referring to, his, to himself as the son of man, he's coming back to this verse and he's saying, I am in charge of all of these things. And if Jesus saw himself simply as a good man, he would not be making this claim about himself. That would be like me saying, hey, I'm a student minister here and I have power and authority over all of you and dominions forever. It's a pretty bold claim to make, right? But Jesus did it. Jesus didn't see himself as a, simply a good man. My favorite title that Jesus uses is actually one that God started back in Exodus. If you remember Moses, whenever he goes up on the mountain and he sees this burning bush and it's not burning up. And then this voice says, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. Moses takes off his sandals and they have this conversation where God says, hey, you're going to lead all of my people out of slavery. Moses stops. He says, I don't think I'm the man to do it. He says, you are, just watch. He says, okay, well, how am I gonna explain this story to my people? Hey guys, I was walking up on a mountain, saw a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't burning up and God was talking to me through the bush. Sounds a little crazy if we think about it in realistic terms. So God says this whenever he, uh, he says, what do I say? And God said, I am who I am. This might be the most passive aggressive thing that I could have read in 2023. Like, who, do you, who are you? I am. But back then, that was a very important title that God gave. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now this phrase, I am, it means to be in Hebrew. And that we, we get names like Jehovah from it. We have names like Yahweh from it. And these titles of Yahweh and Jehovah, and understand, they didn't have vowels back then. They just had consonants. So they had to introduce vowels to, to, to fit like with the uh, pronunciation of everything. So you, it's why you have different names, but the point that needs to be made is that these are holy names. They are so holy that as a matter of fact, Jews today will not say the names Yahweh. In your Bible, if you see the name Lord in the Old Testament um, uh, capitalized, that's because they won't write the name Yahweh because it's too holy to utter. And that's from a verse in Leviticus. 
the point that needs to be made is that this was a very, very particular term. And it was not to be taken lightly. So when God says, when you go to the people and they ask, who sent you? You just simply tell them, I am. Well, what does that mean about Jesus? Well, in the book of John, Jesus refers to himself as I am seven times. In chapter six, you hear, I am the bread of life. Chapter eight, he says, I am the light of the world. Verse 10, I mean, chapter 10, I am the gate. Chapter 10, again, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. For somebody who, if he was just a good man, he is using a very particular uh, pronunciation or, or, or name for himself that is meant to express a lot more than just a good man. If Jesus is saying, I am these things, that means that he is saying, this is me, I have authority. Well, how do we know that? Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. A lot of different people will say that Jesus never claims to be God. Well, if we look at the way that Jesus refers to himself, it seems like, He was God. Another instance in John chapter five, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. And not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus saw himself as God. He wasn't just a good man. That was part of it, absolutely. But Jesus didn't see himself as just a man in skin. Number two, Jesus was a crazy fool. People were saying that he was a lunatic, that he was a megalomaniac, that he was like, uh, almost like Hitler or somebody else who just took this crazy stance that, hey, I am this way. This is who I am. And people were just like, well, wait a second. We ain't gonna follow that or we will follow that. But Jesus' closest friends didn't see him that way. In Matthew chapter 13, Verse 54, it says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? He was doing something that people believed was working. There's a reason that every time he would go somewhere, crowds would follow him. Something was going on that people believed that if I just simply touch his cloak, I can be healed. Whenever we read about his miraculous powers, well, there was something that made him feel like he had power. People were intrigued. They were excited to be around Jesus. In John chapter six, verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Things got too hard. They ran. So Jesus asked the 12, do you want to go away too? And Peter, go figure, pulling up on his Harley, answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They believed that God, I mean, that Jesus was God. They believed that Jesus had these words of eternal life. Whatever Jesus was doing, the disciples saw it and not only did they see it, they believed it to where they knew it. If somebody was crazy, at some point you would come to your senses. But instead his group grew. 
If you read throughout the first and second, uh, first through third century um, historical documents, you read about how people saw Christians. And for one person, Julian the Apostate, he writes in a, in a letter, he describes Christians as being more kind and more generous to the sick and then the poor than the pagan priests were. And that Jesus was the one who taught them to do that. In Matthew chapter five, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says in Matthew 20, the last will be first and the first will be last. Matthew 23, the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus not only changed the way that they lived, but he changed the way that they thought. He changed the way that they viewed people. He changed the way that people saw other people who were broken and busted. And I think if we look at our lives today, the same can be said, at least hopefully, is that when we look at people who are, who are different than us, who are broken than us, it was by the example of Jesus that we've changed our thinking. And would a crazy fool be able to do that? We wouldn't believe it. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus wasn't a crazy fool. And number three, Jesus was a deceitful fraud. Now, this is where I had to put the brakes on my own thinking and say, hey, slow down, stay focused. I can make a ton of claims about myself. You all know, at least most of you know, that I am a huge Cleveland Browns fan. My life is very sad. The reason that you guys believe I'm a fan is because I stand up here and I tell you that I'm a fan and I've been here from the start. I have several jerseys. It's a very sad closet. But if I didn't have actions that backed up my claims, then you wouldn't believe that I was actually a Browns fan. And for Jesus, whenever he would make these claims about himself, we have to ask, okay, how did he prove it? One word, miracles. I know that you've probably asked this question as well as I have, is that we wish that Jesus would do miracles the same way today as he did back then. But I want you to understand something. Miracles are happening today, just like they did back then, just in a different way. Think about medicine, think about surgeries. They didn't have that stuff back then, now we do. Those are, those are miracles in themselves. So when Jesus would perform miracles back then, he was doing that to affirm his character. He was doing it to confirm who he was. He did it so that he could make sure that they knew like, hey, I'm gonna make these claims and I'm going to prove to you that I made these claims. There are so many miracles. There are 36 different ones, as a matter of fact, of people in the gospels. Would a fraud be able to do miracles? Josephus, who was a Roman historian who died in 100 AD, he actually wrote this. Now there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it is lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. So Josephus, who was living around the first century as well, he writes that there was a man named Jesus who people considered a, a great man who was doing great works. And Josephus wasn't a Christian. He was just a historian. So instead of trying to say, well, wait a second, he didn't do those miracles. People say that he fed 5,000, but he didn't actually do it. There is no historical record that says that he didn't do miracles. Instead, there are several historical documents that say that he was doing something that people saw that were miracles. 
a fraud wouldn't be able to do those miracles. If somebody was faking this, th- th- this claim, well, then they would probably be looking out for themselves. They would be doing these acts or these amazing works or whatever else to build up their wealth, to build up their fame, to build up what they have. Jesus was the opposite. In Matthew chapter nine, he says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was looking out for the people who had nothing. Quadratus in uh, uh, 120 AD, who was a Christian historian, wrote this. The works of our savior, savior were lasting for they were genuine. Those healed and those raised from the dead were seen not merely while our savior was on earth, but also after his death. They were alive for a while. So some of them lived even to our day. Frauds don't care about people. Eventually the real side of them comes out. And I think you can think in your mind about who that fraud looks like to you. If people who maybe pretended to care about other people, but it turns out they didn't. And Jesus' whole life, his whole ministry was about leading people to truth. And he didn't care about what his earthly part of it was. In uh, Matthew chapter eight, he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the what? Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. C.S. Lewis writes in regards to this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. This man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was not fake. Jesus was not a fraud. He was either Lord or he isn't. He's either God or he's not, which leads us to describe Jesus one way. Jesus was God in human flesh, meaning that he took on the form of a man on his own will. He chose to do this. He chose to make himself less of that godly aspect for a moment so that we could have life. And the best way we can uh, see this is actually in John chapter one, verse one, which in my opinion is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So you might be asking, okay, first off, why is word capitalized and how is it a word? Are we saying that the Bible was there? Are we saying that there's some other kind of book? Well, let's go down a few more verses. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We cannot undermine the importance of God taking on human flesh. 
If God is not 100% God whenever he sacrificed himself, then we have nothing. If God is not a, a man, meaning that he wasn't actually there to resurrect, well, then the resurrection is a lie. Him resurrecting as fully man is what makes this so important. You see, whenever he would appear to other people after the resurrection, why was it so important that they touched him and that they see him? Because it confirmed who he was. It confirmed his deity. It's not, I didn't pretend to resurrect. I really did. My humanity was to prove my deity. That's what Jesus, I feel like, is trying to point here. Philippians chapter two, and if the band's gonna be coming up here, but in Philippians chapter two, you have one of the most important, I think I've already said that like 16 times a day, just hold on tight, I'll probably say it more. Important aspects of scripture. You see, whenever you see certain uh, verses in scripture that seem to like break off of like their, their natural flow, and it seems like, hey, that person's not writing in the same way they were. Like, why does that seem like in a different paragraph? Well, it's what we like to call a creed. A creed is a oral thing that somebody has memorized and has written down. Still need that. But whenever Paul is writing here, he is writing in a creed. So he's writing out exactly what he says, but then he breaks from his vernacular, from the way he words stuff. And he starts quoting from memory, something that he had learned which means that somebody else had learned it. And they're so important. So in Philippians chapter two, you have this. Adopt the same attitude as that that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, I don't need this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. You might be asking, okay, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Jesus could have done anything. Jesus could have stopped all of what he was about to go through. But when he gives up his divine qualities, when he gives up that deity aspect, there were certain parts that he could not do. And dying on the cross was something he had to do. That was the humanity side of him. Go back to that uh, section for me, please. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. Who was Jesus? Jesus was God in human flesh. And whenever we notice just how important that is, if God is not fully God, the sacrifice on the cross is useless. If he doesn't actually die a human death, well, then what sacrifice are we actually making? The best thing about God is that we are able to use a thing called, like we named the Trinity, to explain concepts that we read through scripture. Jesus was God in human flesh. And because he gave up part of his deity for us, 
we are able to live in our humanity for him. Never let anybody try to take away the person of Jesus because we stand on it and we have good reason to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. For times where we, 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 we fall short and yet you still love us, you still choose us. And God, if there are ever moments in our lives to where we feel like we're in the way, God, push us out of our own way. God, help us to sit back and pray prayers like our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, our kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because there are times where we're selfish and we try to fight this world for ourselves. God, shame on us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this team. Thank you for these people. God, help us to take the things that we hear, the things that you're trying to speak to us, and God, we don't hide them. And God, as messed up as we are and as crazy as it seems like we are, God, the mission of Jesus can sometimes seem crazy to people, but that doesn't mean that you're crazy. It may seem strange to other people to why we give up earthly, earthly things to achieve, God, God, the only thing we're achieving is a relationship with you. That's our goal. That's our task. God, we are nothing on our own. It's just you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.